Goldthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. A perfect score, 10.0 for Nancy Cavanici, a perfect score. The first time I've never seen anyone get a over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68, the wind is okay. How easy was that? It is Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for another interview episode. A big interview for you today. A two-time Olympic medalist, three-time Olympian, and a whole other bunch of superlatives that you'll hear me say in just a few moments in my second introduction for her. I'm talking about Kerry Pothast, Sydney 2000 gold medalist in the sport of beach volleyball, bronze medalist from Atlanta as well, and our very first taste of volleyball on this show, be it beach or indoor. Very excited to bring you this chat today. Kerry goes over a lot of great insight into her amazing career, including how how the scene of indoor volleyball was in Australia in the 80s and the 90s. Just what what brought about the transition across to beach volleyball? The, the key differences when it comes to playing between the two of them. And also how she's been able to use her two medal wins as inspiration moving forward across the way. So it's a, a great chat here. You're going to learn a lot today in this interview and I'm very excited to bring it to you right now. Here is our chat with two-time Olympic medalist Kerry Pothast. It is an absolute honour to welcome our next guest here to Off the Podium. She is a three-time Olympian, a two-time Olympic medalist, a 25-time podium finisher on the World Beach Volleyball Tour. She's been inducted into the International Volleyball Hall of Fame, the Australian Sports Hall of Fame, and her biggest honour today is that she's going to be the first ever athlete from the sport of volleyball, beach or indoor, to appear here on Off the Podium. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show today, Kerry Potthouse. Kerry, first of all, honour to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. What a great intro. Thank you. What an honour to be your first ever volleyball athlete. I'm sure there'll be more to come. <laughs> I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. We're sort of uh, going through a, a variety of all the sports, but uh, I think your name uh, easily tops it up there as people would have uh, loved to get on the show to chat about this because volleyball, be it beach or indoor, is always one of these sports that that fascinates me because it seems that in Australia we only really ever get to see it during sort of the Olympics or recently more so in, in the Commonwealth Games. But it's such a great sport, Kerry. Why, why do we not like volleyball more in this country? Yeah, what a great question. And who the hell knows why not? I mean, yeah, beach volleyball especially. I mean, we're made to play beach volleyball. We have the best beaches in the world in this country. You know, so many people are, are living and playing on the beach. You know, you've got your lifesavers, the nippers out there all day. Give them a ball and give them something else to do other than run and swim, I say. And um, But, you know, look, it's tough. I mean, there's there's plenty of sports and, and things for kids to choose from. And Volleyball's never been a big sport. It's very big in other countries. Like it's it's the highest participation sport, you know, um, in every, almost in the world, I think, uh, behind soccer, I believe. And so, you know, it's, 
I, I just don't know. I pull my hair out all the time thinking about how we can make it better. But um, I don't know. If anybody out there has any ideas, let us know. <laughs> exactly. We'd love to. I mean, I remember visiting Nebraska and, uh, you know, a state which they don't really have a lot of, well, no proteins basically. And they had just built, I think, a 20,000 seat stadium for their women's volleyball team to show how much not only that they love volleyball in America, but just, you know, that was a college team as well. So maybe we need to, uh, you know, drink the, the Kool-Aid in, in the States to see what they're doing there. And we can get sort of 20,000 seat stadiums built for our <laughs> teams here. That would be nice. Yeah, look, it's definitely huge in in the states. Um, the college system really promotes a lot of sport, and um, volleyball is one of them. So they get a lot of athletes coming through the the college network, and then a, the, now a lot of them are pouring into the beach as well. Over the years, uh, beach volleyball has been around for a long time. You know, almost I think sixty years or seventy years um, in the world. It started off. Well, apparently, according to the the Americans, it started off in America. <laughs> um, <laughs> they always invent everything, don't they? Like according yeah, to them. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that, well, their women's team actually won gold in beach and in indoor this time. So I think it's the first time that's ever happened. So that's going to get again give it a massive burst in the states, especially for women in college. So the college system, I think, is the key in the high school system, big in high schools as well, and they have big programs. And I think that's where we lack. We don't have those big programs. We often just have the clubs. We have the volleyball clubs. We have the soccer clubs. But we don't have really um, dedicated teams within school and, and university networks, and I think that's where we lack for some sports. With all that in mind, you started off, of course, in indoor volleyball, I believe, at the age of 17. I mean, kind of what led you into taking up volleyball? Were you just very active in a variety of sports and volleyball was kind of where it stuck? I mean, how did it all begin? Well, it was quite funny, actually. I was, well, as you can imagine, being a young female, you're already a bit self-conscious. I was six foot tall, so towering above everybody, especially the boys when I was young. And, you know, I was pretty self-conscious about my height, but also my, my surname. I got teased a lot, you know, that you pot hast, you take the H off and the T off the end and there's an ass in the middle. So, <laughs> you know, I got teased all sorts of names and I was quite sensitive and I, well, I'm, I'm quite a sensitive person still. Um, and I think when I was first introduced to volleyball by my brother, he actually asked me to fill in in a social team. He didn't have enough players for the team. So he said, come and stand on the court. When the whistle blows, get out the way and, and we'll just play each point. But I kind of stayed on the court a little bit and tried to play with some of his mates. And at the end of it, he said, oh, well, you're pretty tall and maybe you could play this sport. So he dragged me along to his club team. And all of a sudden, everyone in the club's like, oh, yeah, we'll have you. We'll teach you how to play, you know, six foot tall. So I'm being patted on the back for being tall. And all of a sudden, my height was an advantage and it was something that people were, you know, um, jealous of and, and, you know, wanted me for. And I'm like, yay. So I found my tribe, I guess, in volleyball. And I just loved the teamwork aspect of it. You know, I'm a really social person. So I like to have people around me a lot, team. And so I really loved it and fell into it very quickly. And advanced very quickly because I had some great coaches where I grew up. I had some national team players who had become coaches. And so I was very lucky to get good skill training at the very beginning. It's a sport that I don't often associate too much with height. It's, I mean, it makes sense. Of course, you've got a large net there, but I mean, obviously you think of sort of tall sports. I mean, basketball comes to mind, netball, sort of those sort of sports. So is it a sport that really does favor height similar to those sports as well? 
Well, I mean, indoor more so than the beach. Um, indoor being six people, very specific. The you know, the taller you are, you still have to be able to you know chew and uh, chew gum and, and walk at the same time. So you still have to be reasonably athletic and um, well, pretty athletic, and <laughs> and uh, be able to you know have good hand eye coordination. Um, so height obviously is a massive advantage. Some players who are a little bit smaller but have great jumps or, or long arms and can reach high and have, you know, incredible skills, they can make it through if their height is a little bit less than, than the other players. But these days, you know, for, for our Australian team, we're looking at players, you know, around six foot or a little bit under, but, you know, the taller the better indoors. But then you go out onto the beach where you've got just a slightly smaller size court um, and there's only two of you to cover it. So you have to be incredibly skillful now. Um, and then, so then if you find the balance between a really tall person who learns really good skill and can move through the sand, and that's the biggest thing, you know, when you're tall, sometimes, you know, you're heavier, it's diff more difficult to move through the sand. I'm very, I'm, I'm kind of tall and lean. Um, and so I found it easier to move through the sand than most people my height. And so, yeah, you, you kind of tall is good, but on the beach, it is more about skill. And when you get to the top level, um, well, more about skill in the beginning, then strategy, because then you need to add the strategy onto that and pick the right strategy, strategy to use at the right time. And then the very kind of pinnacle is you have to have, you know, a really strong mindset because uh, you lose a lot of points and you have to be able to, you know, get back up after every point and, and go again and go again and go again. So it's all about your mindset and your belief. There's definitely some mindset stuff I'm going to ask you about because there's some very famous stories about what you and uh, Natalie did in the lead up to Sydney, which I would love to learn a little bit more about. But during the 80s and sort of working your way up the ladder, you know, making the national team in, in indoor, eventually you went on to captain the team as well. What was the scene like sort of in the 80s and the early 90s for indoor volleyball in this country? And obviously Australia's only represented at the Olympics in, in Sydney in both men's and women's, but what were the the likelihood of qualifying for an Olympics back in the 80s? Was it something that was possible? Oh. Kind of was the sport just not there yet in the 80s? No, there, it wasn't possible at all. It wasn't even on my radar as an, a volleyball athlete playing for Australia. Well, like, there was no way we were ever going to make the Olympics. We were, you know, ranked 20-something in the world, and they only take, I think, around about 12 teams maximum to each Olympics, so you have to qualify. And we had to always qualify through the Asian zone, and we had China and Japan, Korea, who were really strong and had always, you know, Korea I don't think had, had qualified all the time, but definitely the others and so it was always, you know, never on my radar as a young athlete that I'd, I'd, you know, go to the Olympics in indoor volleyball and just playing for the national team. We all had full-time jobs. You know, we we trained before work with our clubs, after work with our clubs. We, we tr played competition in our states once a week. And then um, we'd go away for training camps. You know, we might have a two- or three-week training camp where we'd get flogged and you just couldn't walk at the end of it because you'd never trained that hard in your life. You know, very different to now when, you know, as a full-time athlete, it's, you know, you can train so much more and you can recover and you don't have to work off more. Most people still have to work because there's not a lot of money in, in volleyball. But, um, yeah, it was a lot harder back then. And uh, every moment of your spare time was spent you know, playing or training for your sport. And so it becomes a passion and you only stay in it because you're passionate about it. And, you know, I loved everything about it. I loved the people in particular that I, I got to train and play with. 
you got to experience though the taste of a professional athlete uh, by playing pro in Italy for a season though obviously they they love their volleyball and that part of the world what was sort of that experience like yeah, well, Italy was the highest paying league in the world around that time and um, obviously attracted a lot of great international players. They were allowed two international players per um, team. And I just had this random idea one day that I'd go and play in Europe professionally. And I thought, oh, I might as well go to Italy where there's a lot of money because I've never earned a cent. I've only ever paid to play for Australia. Um, you know, one year we had to give our tracksuits back for the next um, national team. Wow. That's how, that's how poor our sport was. Wow. Uh, it was a lot better now, but it was pretty bad. And so I quit a really high paying job. I was, I think I was 25. Um, yeah, I'd been playing in the national team for a long time. I was captain and oh no, 27, I think. And I was, um, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, had a full-time job. I quit that. Everybody around me said, you're crazy. You shouldn't be doing this. You know, you, you'll never get that great job that you had again if you, if you take a year off. And I just basically through friends found a club who was looking for somebody and it was good timing. They, it was only a few weeks until the season started and I was in Europe visiting my boyfriend who was working in England. And so we just drove across to this club in Italy from England um, and I just did a tryout in the, in the club gym and, and they really liked what they saw and I got the contract and I was just absolutely thrilled. And then we went on and had another week of holiday and then I had to fly back. And I tell you, the first week of playing in a professional team where, you know, you're expected to be the best in your team was one of the hardest things I've ever come across. Like I'd be lying at night in a hot bath just going, oh, my God, <laughs> is it going to get any easier? Is my body ever going to get used to this? It, and it did eventually, but it was um, a completely different experience because when you're being paid to play in another club team, you have to finish the ball off. You have to be the best all the time. And so, you know, that taught me a lot, a hell of a lot that, that uh, I think I was there for about eight months. Which I was going to say that experience, I can imagine, yeah, like it helps you sort of on, on that journey moving forward. And I, I can imagine then that people back in Australia and the national team would have, would have been loving to kind of have someone with that experience, even if it was just for one season. Yeah, look, it, it taught me more than I probably realised. You know, when, when I look back at it now, I don't talk about it a lot. I, I, you know, tend to just talk mainly about my beach volleyball career. But that eight months in, in Italy taught me not only to be a better player because I was surrounded by players, and that's the reason I wanted to go there, not to earn money particularly. That was the bonus. That was a cherry on top. It was to actually get better. I would got to a point where in Australia I was one of the best players and I thought, how am I going to actually get even better? Because I know I can. And so I was surrounded by all these great players, but I was actually halfway through the season, we were losing and they called me into the office and said, look, we're really sorry, but we need to get a stronger foreign player because we need to stay in the top division. We're in the A1 division. And so they were going to let me go and bring in a Brazilian player um, who was better than me. And um, yeah, they were really sad and disappointed, but they, they had to do it for the club. And they gave me two options. They said, you can either stay and train with the club and we'll, you know, you, you train with us every every session, but you can't play the the matches, or we can pay you out and you can go back to Australia. And I'm I like it took me two seconds to decide what to do because I don't give up. And I said, oh, I'll just stay and train with you. That you know, of course I, I'll be, you know, gutted that I can't play, but I'll stay. So I decided to stay. And within a couple of weeks, a Brazilian player had come over, she started training, they ended up um 
calling me in the office a couple of weeks later and I trained my absolute butt off for those two weeks. I tell you, I've never played better volleyball in my life because I, in my own self, I wanted to prove that I was worth keeping. And they called me back into the office and said, look, we've, we're keeping the Brazilian player, but we've decided to keep you and sack the other foreign player who was a girl from Germany who was a friend of mine, which was sad, but it was just like, oh, my gosh, you know. So I learned at that point how incredibly um, important it is to just keep on digging away and and huh, see the pun there, that's a volleyball term. I, I, yeah, that, I like that. <laughs> just I, just keep on, keep on fighting for, you know, fighting for yourself and and you know just don't give up and it was massive so when I came back to Australia yes of course I was a, a better player um, but I think emotionally and mentally I was a much better person as well what was the scene in terms of beach versus indoor like you mentioned sort of the history about beach had been around for a while but obviously it didn't make its debut at the Olympics until Atlanta so was there kind of a, a growth in the sport sort of once they announced that and a lot more people were sort of switching for it, it was a bit taboo for indoor volleyball players to go play beach I mean kind of kind of what was that scene like versus indoor and beach at the time yeah well around the time I've kind of finished my indoor career because I wrecked my knee that was when um, in 1992 they had a beach volleyball as like a demonstration sport in Barcelona so it wasn't a, a full medal sport it was just like hey let's just see what this looks like and they loved it so much that they made um, the sport, a full-time sport in 1996, which was the first Olympics I went to. And, and Natalie and I were lucky enough to win the first ever medal given out because they gave the bronze women's medal out first. So we're like, yes, first. That works. That's history. <laughs> the there <world>. it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but back in Australia, like at that time, leading into the first Olympics, there weren't a lot of people playing. Absolutely weren't a lot of people. And I started playing with my best friend, um, Annette, and she'd also retired from the indoor national team. And so we, we gave it a bash and played a couple of world tours, really liked it, did well, did pretty well. And then I realised that I had a chance to get to my first Olympics. I thought, well, wow, if the Olympics are coming up in a couple of years, then maybe I could get to an Olympics in this sport. Um, and then I had to look around and go, wow, well, I need to play with one of the best players. And Annette being you know, a great player at the time and my best friend, which was really hard, um, I could see that she had already reached a level that perhaps wouldn't she wouldn't get that much better. And, and I felt like I needed somebody who could take us to the next level. And that's when I looked around and there absolutely weren't many people playing at all out on the beach. Um, but Natalie Cook was one of them. And that's when I approached Nat and we got together. But I think after Atlanta, after 1996, that's when a lot more players went, hey, maybe we could go to the Olympics too. So we saw a bit of an influx of indoor players trying to get out on the beach and we expanded our, our national program, which was based in Adelaide, in the hope that we would, you know, get some, some more players, which we did. We had some great teams at three women's teams and three men's teams at the Sydney Olympics. With the two, men's teams, two men's teams. Well, with Sydney in mind too, kind of obviously in the lead up to Atlanta, Sydney gets the games in 93. So when you kind of get that all of a sudden realisation that, hey, I can become an Olympian and go to Atlanta, does that also spur you on to think, well, hey, if I do well and go to Atlanta, then I could potentially represent my country at a home Olympics, uh, you know, the, the Olympics after Atlanta? Yeah, I remember in 93, I was at a dinner when um, when that was announced, when Sydney got the Olympics. And at that point, point I was still recovering from my knee injury and so I hadn't really made the switch yet but I think leading into Atlanta like you, 
I don't think I was thinking about Sydney at that point. We were so focused. We, you kind of, as an Olympic athlete, it's hard to focus past four years. Four years is a long period to focus, you know, towards. Um, to think about the next one is almost, almost taboo in a way because it's like, oh, because it's such a big thing that you're going for. So Atlanta was so huge, but definitely after Atlanta, you know, that was our focus 100 million percent. And we even split up for a little while as a team because we weren't sure whether we were the best combination to try and win gold in Sydney. But uh, we came back together and, and we realised literally within the first five minutes of being together on the sand that um, that split that we'd had was actually worth it. And, you know, coming back together, it just felt like magic. When you first met Nat and you approach her and you kind of have that team and you, and you build up to when you do go to the Olympics. I mean, when it, when it comes to beach volleyball and you're training together like that, what sort of aspects do you need to work on in terms of communication, you know, mentality and everything? Because it's all well and good to hit a ball and play well on the court, but I'm sure there's also that camaraderie you need with your teammate to help you out there. So sort of in the lead up to the Olympics outside of the physical aspect, what sort of mental and sort of team bonding things would you and Nat do to try and really get that chemistry on the court together? Oh, yeah, that's a big question because I believe that is the key to our success, that what we did do. Um, where do I start? Well, I guess let me just point out a couple of things and we can dig deeper into those if you want. But the first thing we realised was that we had to have the right partner. So that split coming back together, we then had almost two years to prepare for Sydney. Then we looked at each other and said, okay, we've got the right partner. Now we need the best team around us. We had a volleyball coach already, but then we thought, what else do we need? We need somebody who can look after us physically and, and put all our programs together, work together with our volleyball coach, someone perhaps that's not involved in a program training a lot of other athletes. So we need our own guys. So we got a, a Phil Moreland on board um, to be our, our physical trainer. And then we thought, you know, as we kind of started to progress month by month, the thing that we realized that was kind of missing, but it was almost, we didn't know yet what this last person or this third coach could do for us was mindset. And we realized that in order to, to grow, we could also do a lot more growth off the court than we could on because there's a limited time that we can train. And all the other teams in the world were training the same amount of hours as we, we were on the sand and in the gym. And we had to try and catch up to the Americans and the Brazilians who were dominating our sport at that time. And so in order to catch up, we thought one thing that we can do is, is, improve our mindset and work on that part of our game and work on our belief systems. So when, you know, we start to have fears and doubts about whether we can do something, you know, our belief systems really support our, ourselves and, and can kind of overcome those fears, doubts, challenges, whatever. So we employed, or we didn't pay him. <laughs> we <laughs> asked somebody to come on board with us and his name was Kirik Ashley and, and he helped us develop um, all that part of our, our mind and, and, at the end of the day, all that, add up, all that added up to was just this unshakable belief that we had. So we did some crazy things. We walked on hot coals. We walked on broken glass. We, um, you know, we did all these team building activities. We'd be blindfolded, holding hands with an egg on a spoon, trying to make our way through like a forest, following <laughs> a whistle. Like <laughs> we did some pretty wow. out there things that other people <laughs> were kind of scratching their head wondering what the hell we were doing <laughs> but uh and we were too at the time I tell you Natalie and I were just like what the f like you know <laughs> we certainly had some interesting conversations but you know looking back it was all part of building that belief it was all part of putting pushing ourselves ourselves every single day out of our comfort zone 
and being okay with that and being used to that. So by the time we stood on the sand in front of 10,000 people cheering us and willing us to try and win, it didn't freak us out. We were just with them. We were like, yeah, like we're here. This is where we're supposed to be. And we believed in ourselves 100%. So, you know, in both sets, we played best of three sets and we won two sets to nil. And in both sets, we were behind each time. But on our faces, when I look back at the video, there was not one little bit of doubt on our faces. And you can actually see on the video where the Brazilians who were playing, who had, who um, had beaten us 16 out of 17 matches in the lead up to the games. We could see literally the doubt come over, you know, and the, the fear come over their face towards the end of the match where they just went, what the hell, you know, even after the first set we won, I, I still think that they felt, okay, we just got to, you know, finish these Aussies off and win the next two sets. But in our mind, it was like, no, like we're not going to let you. And so that's, you could see it in their faces, it's, it's just a totally different mindset when someone gives up and somebody steps up. It, it, I remember the lead up to Sydney and kind of the talk around, you know, Bondi and all the controversy and everything around it, but then just it turned into basically one of the best venues, I think, during, during the Olympics. And it seemed to affect a lot of teams, didn't it, kind of that all of a sudden 10,000 people there, uh, sort of, you know, the pressure of that Olympics. But, I mean, to kind of hear that sort of helped you, all sort of all those methodologies that you did in the lead up. Is that now something that you kind of through, I guess, uh, mentoring, coaching, talking to other people through your uh, motivational speaking that you would encourage athletes to kind of do that that mental aspect of things to prepare them for a big stage like that yeah 100 percent. i mean we tried to prepare by um playing loud music at training and all that sort of stuff but it never really prepares you for that moment it's a bit like what's just happened in tokyo everyone was so worried about there being no spectators you know oh my god those poor athletes you know but they don't like at the end of the day, the ones that did well, they didn't care. Like, of course they would have liked to have spectators and it's really amazing playing that energy, but it can also freak you the hell out. <laughs> like the first time we stepped on the court in Sydney, you know, I nearly peed my pants and we nearly, um, we nearly lost our first match against a team that was ranked 32nd in the tournament. So, you know, we were so scared. So as much as you can prepare for a particular moment, like playing loud music and imagining millions of people watching you um, until it actually happens, you know, you, you don't really know what it's like. It's not, it's not the best preparation, but what we were prepared for was being able to respond to our feelings and our emotions. So we could prepare for that uncomfortable feeling. We'd been uncomfortable so many times in the lead up doing so many different weird things. And so we were okay with being uncomfortable. We were okay with being a little bit scared and we just, we just fought it and fought it and fought it. And eventually we pulled through and each game it became easier and easier. So yeah, really completely different experiences, Sydney and how the athletes would have been in Tokyo. But again, you know, you put your blinkers on, you get into that zone and it doesn't really matter. When it came from the transition from indoor to beach, I mean, how, besides the obvious, you mentioned slightly smaller court, there's less players, one you're playing on sand, the other you're not playing on sand. I mean, is there much of a, I guess, a, a difference when you've got to adapt from the indoor to, to the beach? And what were sort of some of the, the difficult things you found overcoming when you went from your indoor career to your beach career? Yeah, it's very, very different. Um, like I said before, running around in sand is completely different in bare feet than running around in, in shoes and knee pads on a hard floorboards. So, 
yeah, completely different environment. Um, indoors, there's obviously no wind. You know, you've got your artificial lights out on the beach. You've got the sun which moves around. So you could be staring into it one minute straight ahead because the sun's setting or it could be right up in the sky in the middle of the day and you have to look up to look at the ball and the, the ball is just caught in the ring of the ball of the bright sun as you're looking at it. So, you know, there's so many different environmental issues. It can rain, it can pelt down. They'll only stop if there's lightning. Um, wow. It can, the sand can be rock hard because of rain. It can be super deep. It can be grainy, it can be full of shells. It can be, have rocks in there that you're unaware of that, you know, we've been on courts in some places in the world where, Natalie, for instance, she's a real gardener on the court. She just finds rocks with her toes all the time and she's forever going, hang on a minute, and she goes down and pulls a rock out and throws it to the side, you know. So wow. it's uh, obviously that doesn't happen in the big tournaments because they're all, you know, beautifully manicured courts and the sand is often brought in um, and they're all made um, on artificial surfaces. I mean, you know, in, in the middle of cities, um, in towns, you know, very few big events now are actually on the beach. I think... You'll probably see that, I don't know if there'll be another country ever, apart from Australia, Bondi and Rio, Copacabana Beach, where you'll see beach volleyball actually on a beach. Is it down for Brisbane? It. Are they having it sort of, is it going to be down on the Gold Coast in the way I had the Con they, Games? They or? will, but often it's not actually on the beach. It's right. kind of like for the Gold Coast, they they brought it back off the beach on the grass. That's so right. there's still dumps right. yeah. and and make a venue. Even in Sydney, they dumped extra sand down to kind of even it all out, but it was actually on the real beach. Is it, I guess, similar in many aspects when we speak to some of our winter athletes, obviously there's different types of snow that certain, you know, snow athletes will feel. Is is that a case for beach volleyball players as well, that you maybe have a preference to a type of sand, you know, more of a a harder type or a softer type or something along those lines? Yeah, well, most athletes will tell you that the harder type is better because it's easier to move around in. Um, Portugal, I remember in Espanol, uh, the sand there is like quicksand and we always didn't like going there because it made us shorter players as well. So if you're tall, it makes you shorter because you're sinking in. Of course, the shorter players are shorter too, but <laughs> it just it's a whole different perspective on the game. Your timing is different because you go down deeper before you come up. You, you can't move as fast. So, yeah, very, very different. Just touching on Atlanta, you mentioned obviously, you know, the first ever, I like that, the first ever medalist ever in women's beach volleyball. That's a, that's a great way no, of selling uh, it. No, in beach volleyball, full stop. In beach volleyball, full stop. So even yeah. before the men, all right, done, all right, sorry, we'll, we'll clarify that. But going in, did, did you and Nat sort of have expectations to medal? Was it kind of medal or yeah. nothing or was it kind of a case of it was a bonus to walk away with the medal? No, we, we definitely um, set our goal of winning a medal. And, and that was probably the reason why we didn't make the final because we said we wanted to win a medal. Our biggest match was, and we were ranked six in the world at the time, and our biggest match was against the number one American team who um, was going to be in the gold medal match, who everybody thought would be in the gold medal match with the top Brazilian team. And we beat them in the quarterfinal. And then we had a semifinal the next day against the second Brazilian team who we'd beaten a few times. It wasn't, you know, a walkover. Um, type game, but we definitely had wins against them. Uh, obviously, you know, we'd lost against them a lot as well. But when we were preparing for that game, we we were frightened. We were scared. We were like, okay, we've come here for a medal. If we win this, we're definitely in with a medal because we'll go to the final. If we lose it, we could come fourth. And the only thing that, the, the thing that we kept on focusing on, instead of thinking, 
we win, we're in with a medal. We focused on, oh, what happens if we lose? We could come fourth, fourth, fourth. And that's all we focused on, both of us, you know, when we've talked about it in the past, um, that we freaked ourselves out, that, that you know, we, we were feeling that the worst possible scenario was a possibility. And when we stepped down on the court, we were just totally freaked out. And it was, you know, Natalie talks about, I think, the first point, she just looked across the court and went, we're going to lose, you know, in her, in her mind and deep in her heart. And, you know, with that sort of fear and doubt, there's no way you can play your best. And so we got absolutely thrashed. Um, and then luckily we had some inspirational moments that night because we were pretty down. We had to come out the next day and play the, the second ranked American team to try and get the bronze. And then we beat them in the bronze medal match in Atlanta. And we'd beaten the third ranked American American team in the pool place or the, the previous place. So we beat all the Americans in, in Atlanta. And then we beat all the Brazilians in Sydney. And to me, that's like almost a, uh, you know, more, I don't know, a bigger, bigger um, win that we did that because they were the, you know, the biggest, players in our sport at the time now there's players from all over the world that that can be norway winning gold medals now in beach volleyball what's going on there i didn't know norway had beaches (laughs) yeah well there aren't many countries that don't there are obviously a few landlocked countries um but yeah they're they're off a lot of them are indoor players that have come out and indoor is obviously huge as we talked about in in europe and, and around the world but now they're just building programs. You know, beach volleyball has become a major sport. They have major competitions with thousands and thousands of spectators. Just following the Olympics, just last week, they had one of the biggest events that there's been for the last 18 months in Europe. And they had crowds. <laughs> and nice. they built this incredible stadium in the middle of Vienna in Austria. And wow. it was just a stadium that went straight up instead of out. And it was all enclosed. And there was, you know, it was very COVID safe. But, um, you know, lights and music and it's massive. So more and more people are, are making that, you know, transition from indoor or just becoming beach players straight out of, you know, university. Crowds. What are those again? I, I remember them. Yeah. They were a thing yeah. once, once. Just, just on that quickly, fun. just when you sort of talk about the transition, do, do many people transition the other way around? Do many people start off as beach players and go, well, this isn't for me, I'm going to try indoor? Um, not as much. What happens these days is... And my son, who's 15, like a lot of people play both. So my son plays indoor, you know, normally now, not at the moment, but would be playing indoor over the winter and beach volleyball over the summer. And then at some point, if you're really good at it and you want to keep going, you make a decision to, you know, to go one way or the other. Um, There have been a few players that have only ever played beach, not many, Um, but yeah, mainly indoor to beach. Is there, is there much rivalry between the two? Like, are, are they both kind of like, do the indoor players look down on the beach or the beach players look down? Like, or is it kind of just your work together, really? I don't really know what indoor players think of, of beach players at the moment. I think sometimes they may be jealous of the freedom and the travel and the fun, you know, that it looks a lot more fun. Obviously, it's a, I believe it's a lot harder than playing indoor. Um, and they probably would argue that. <laughs> um <laughs> I don't think there's any kind of rivalry. I think the biggest rivalry is with the the coaching staff and the programs where, you know, beach volleyball sees an indoor player and says, oh, that'd be great for the beach program and the indoor coach is going, no, <laughs> you know, I want to keep them on in, inside. So, yeah, so that's probably the rivalry is more between the coaches trying to poach each other's players. 
Just quickly in terms of the experience in 96, you're actually the first athlete we've had from Atlanta, funnily enough. Um, I mean, it was a, it was a unique games, obviously the centenary games, and obviously marred a lot by the, the bombing that happened. I mean, was it a unique atmosphere to kind of be there through all those centenary celebrations and then kind of be marred by such an incident? Do you sort of remember how that mood was around the end of the games compared to the start of the games? Yeah, look, again, it's it's really hard as an athlete because you're often in your bubble. You really are in your bubble. And we've used the word bubble now because of COVID, but the bubble is, you know, the bubble or you surround yourself with in the Olympic Village, for instance. You know, you're surrounded with your immediate team and then your Australian team and you mix a little bit, but you don't really know what's happening in the outside world. Um, you, you're not reading the news. And back then we didn't have mobile phones and we, we weren't on the internet Um, So we didn't really know exactly what was happening around the place. Um, The mood for us was just as per normal. Um, But the the day or the night that we had lost the semifinals, the night that the bomb had gone off. So our coaches, and because we didn't have internet and phones and stuff, our coaches decided not to tell us about it until after the match. So they, they kind of shielded us from what had happened um and yeah we found out after which was pretty pretty shocking and but again you know the security is pretty high i I tell you what it's you know it's one of the safest places to be and that's why i knew tokyo was going to be fine with covid there obviously were a few covid cases but for ten thousand people to be in an olympic village and only have a few cases that was pretty it really was telling of of how tight the security and the health was there. And I, and I think it would have been one of the safest places in the world. Between Atlanta and Sydney, as we know, as you mentioned, you obviously and Nat sort of broke up, got back together again. You had some success on the world stage and you, you go to Sydney 2000. That bronze, obviously, you've come away with the medal. You've gone over the disappointment of the semis, but you still walked away with the medal. I can imagine, though, that that is also then the spurring point. Okay, we've gotten a medal now. It's gold or nothing, basically, at Sydney. Is that kind of the mindset when you guys sort of got back into that zone in, in the weeks leading into the Sydney Olympics, that it was gold or nothing? Yeah, it was gold full stop. There was no or nothing. It was just gold. Like, why give yourself another option? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's what our mindset coach really helped us with, really focus on what we wanted, but also focus past that as well. Um, You know, what are you going to do after? How are you going to celebrate? You know, what are you... Who are you going to talk to? So, you know, as much as our thoughts are around what we were going to achieve in Sydney, it was also around what we we're going to do after with it. And I talk a lot about, I love the gold medal itself. Well, to me, it's just a piece of metal, believe it or not. I mean, obviously it re- represents a lot. And when people see it, they go, oh my God, it's just so amazing. And I go, oh, is it? <laughs> because, I mean, it sounds a bit, I don't know, it sounds a bit funny, but it obviously is special. And sometimes I have to really stare at it and go far out. Like that was an incredible time. It's so long ago now. So it's sometimes hard to remember those feelings, but what I, I like to um, think about it uh, or think about it of is, is that it's really the platform that's given us the opportunity to inspire other people. That's given me opportunities with um, speaking, you know, and, and telling my, sharing my story around the world. I mean, I'm still speaking about how we achieved that goal, what we did and, and the specifics and the strategies and sharing those with people who are able to then apply the same strategies to their life and their career or their sport. Um, so 
for me, and it, it was a big part of why we wanted to do it. We actually wanted to win that so we can inspire other people. Both of us had that in our mind and both of us have done that ever since. Um, and we'll not stop doing that because it, it not only like helps and inspires other people when we share our stories, it makes me feel good about what I've done instead of, you know, you hear so many athletes have this down period and, you know, they, they really suffer after retirement um, from their sport, but I've never had that um, feeling because I've always kept on sharing all the lessons I learned. And it's not about, Hey, I'm standing up there and saying, Hey, I'm really good. It's the, it's what I see on people's faces when I, I share something else, the feedback that I get afterwards. I, for instance, I did a, a talk for a, a group of girls who are being mentored by, by women in business. And one of the girls said, and these are disadvantaged girls. And one of them said afterwards to her mentor, I have hope now you know, after hearing some of the strategies that I've I used to, to deal with challenges. So, yeah, so that's what the medal is to me now. I can't even remember what the question was, but I don't know how I got onto that. This is, is how it always quite... works on this show, Kerry. You'll start off, I'll ask you how the weather is, and you'll end up be crying about your childhood next minute. So Yeah, um, well, it's, it's quite an emotional story. Like, it's quite, a, it's quite an incredible story how Nat and I, you know, got there and, and it, you know, it's interesting and there's a lot of fun and humour in, in what we did in the preparation. I mean, we collected gold stuff as well. We said to everyone, we're going to Sydney to win gold and we were really kind of open about it. We didn't quite believe it at first when we said it, um, but all the preparation we did eventually, we did have that belief. But part of that was surrounding ourselves with gold. So we had gold volleyball, gold swimsuits, gold boxer shorts, gold sheets, gold this, gold, anything that came in the colour gold, we were collecting. And people were starting to give us that when, when we started to tell people about it, if we got a gift of some sort, they'd, they'd give it to us in the colour gold. Wow. Wow. And I can also imagine too, it's hard not to get caught up in the atmosphere that Australia really was in in the lead up to those Olympics. I mean, we all remember what it was like, uh, you know, in Australia with everything that happened and particularly I can imagine in Sydney as well. I mean, is that added pressure? Do you thrive on that kind of, you know, pressure that it's a home Olympics as well and how much the country was caught up in everything Olympic in 2000? I think it is all about how you perceive what's going on around you. And that goes to, you know, what's happening now in the world. You know, we can sit and, and be really um, negative or really scared or in a lot of doubt, or we can try and find the positives and trying, you know, try and be grateful for what we do have and, and continue to kind of be a bit optimistic about, you know, we'll get through this. And for us, the, the crowds, you know, people were saying, oh, it's going to be pressure, it's going to be pressure. But for us, we kind of saw it as a positive pressure. We kind of felt it was like, okay, we'll get it. Instead of letting these people weigh us down and feel the, the weight of them on our shoulders, we're going to actually make it feel like they're lifting us up onto the podium. And so obviously the first match, like I said, was pretty scary, but um, by the end of it, we, we really, yeah, we felt like every, everyone was there kind of, wanting us to to do something and and lifting us and helping support us and that's we just had to turn that perception around I always like to find out from athletes about their Olympic experiences and kind of getting, you know, just invested in that whole Olympic moments that you're there. Obviously, you'd experience that in Atlanta. And, and often we find that 
first Olympics, you're kind of there, okay, I'm competing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much business. But then by the second one, you kind of maybe can take a step back to experience what it's like to be at the Olympics a little bit more. Did you find a difference in between, say, Atlanta to then eventually Athens and kind of were they all their each unique experience across your three Olympics? Yeah, they were each unique experiences. So like you said, the first one, you're like a kid in the lolly shop. You're just kind of like, whoa look at all this, look at all this, this is amazing, <laughs> trying to stay focused and then you win a, win a bronze, you win a medal and then you're like, you know, on top of the world and you think you're the best thing since sliced bread and then reality <laughs> sets in and you go, okay, another four years and you've got to go back and head down and go back to work again. Then you go to your second Olympics and um, for us, we actually didn't stay in the village. We stayed out near Bondi um, and so we didn't go back into the village until after we'd won. But we went in there a couple of times, you know, but so we were we were pretty much in a bubble. And so that was a completely different experience. At first, we were disappointed we weren't in the village. But by the end of it, I think we were grateful that we had our own little bubble. It just really kept us focused. And then once we went in the village, we just experienced everything we possibly could because we'd finished and we finished with the gold. So we were just dragged around by the media um every like every event we were invited to we we went to watch all any Aussie that was still playing or competing we went and tried to see so many different sports we dragged a whole lot of friends of ours into the basketball women's final Australia against the US and uh, we turned up at the door with no tickets we just kind of showed our gold medal and they let us all in <laughs> the gold medal was like it got us free taxi rides. It got us free drinks. We got into oh, you're, you're answering yeah. a question. I always love to ask people whether or not you try and get free stuff with you with your medals. And you, you, I think you might be our first to say that you actually did. I love it. <laughs> yeah, we did through the Olympics. Um, I'm not the type of person that goes and, and waves it around afterwards and go, <laughs> "Hey, I want a gold medal." Um, but uh, look, funny thing, right now all the athletes um, in, not all of them, but a lot of the athletes in uh, quarantine are posting on social media all this free stuff they're getting sent. And I think like Maria Faye, <laughs> Artacho del Salar, one of our athletes, our, our silver medalists, so our yeah. beach volleyball girls, we haven't said that yet, they won silver in Tokyo. Um, they, uh, yeah, they're posting every day, oh, I just got this, and I go, oh, thank you very much, and <laughs> naming all the brands, and she needs another two suitcases to take home all the stuff that she <laughs> <laughs> lucky, lucky for some. Um, did you did you do um, the the opening ceremony in in Sydney, or was the competition too tight? Yeah, around? no, we the competition was the next day, but we had a three o'clock game, and so we had to fight with our our federation and our coaches to let us um, walk in that. But I'm really glad we did because we'd experienced Atlanta, and it was unbelievable um, how it feels walking into the stadium and just the thrill of it. So we wanted to have that feeling. It was part of our preparation. And they were really worried that, you know, we'd be out too late walking. It would affect our first match, um, which we nearly lost. But it, I don't think it was because of that. It was because we were so freaked out. Um, but, uh, yeah, we eventually we eventually let the uh, – they eventually let us, you know, make up our own minds and and we decided to, to march in that. So that was incredible. We were I love lucky. that because I've always said that too, that I, I feel bad for, say, like the swimmers who you always hear, like, oh, they're in the village because they're competing the next morning. I, I feel, and, again, this is a non-athlete speaking, that I'd be the one going, fuck that shit. I'm, I'm marching in that opening. So you can't yeah. stop me. You have to drag me out of it because that's got to be up there with – probably one of the greatest moments of your life, 110,000 people at a home Olympics, you know, behind yeah. Andrew Gaze. I mean, wow, that would have just been insane. 
Yeah, we were all fighting to be on the outside so we could, you know, wave at our friends in the crowd. And I saw a bunch of of my friends and and to get on the camera so we could wave to our families. And but it was it was an incredible experience. It was just so loud, so loud. Um, but yeah, we were lucky to do it. And then you know, having being able to do it in all three Olympics. And so we haven't talked about it, but I did retire after. Um, Sydney and then I, I came back and played with another girl in Athens and that was a, again a completely different experience because I went in as a qualifier last minute qualifier and with no expectations and we were just trying to do the best we could do and and we actually got knocked out by Natalie and her new partner. Yeah I was gonna <laughs> ask how that feels then to sort of uh, you know go out that way. <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty hard for, for all of us, all four of us. I mean, Nat and I are like sisters. At the time, we didn't, we weren't that close because we were competitors as well. And I'd, I'd, I'd retired from playing with her. She picked up a new partner. And then when I came back, I kind of said to her, oh, look, do you want to go to Athens with me? And she thought about it long and hard, but she decided to say no because she wanted to go on past Athens. And so she figured if she, you know, didn't play with this girl, dumped to this girl, she'd just teamed up with um, Nicole, um, then maybe that would affect her post. So she decided to stay with Nicole and, and then obviously it worked out for her. She beat us and then they finished fourth just out of the medals. They made the semis and, and then lost their, their playoff. But her arm was falling off. She had a bad shoulder and I had a bad knee and like, it was just... <laughs> all taped oh, together, God. basically, all those sort of uh, ones yeah. there. With just... when the, the day the, medal, the gold medal match comes about... That was a day after Kathy, of course, won the gold in Sydney, was it not? It was actually the day of. So oh, wasn't the day, day of? Oh, yeah. Right. So we won. We won on that day on the twenty fifth. Uh, Tatiana Gregoreva. She That's right. Got, got the silver that night too. Yep. yep. And then Kathy won the gold that night. So we were back in our accommodation near Bondi, having a, a big party with our family and friends, big barbecue, and we were watching it on TV. But the next morning we had the press conference. So every next day they did a press conference with all the medalists. And so they had Kathy in the middle, Natalie and I on one side and Tatiana on the other. And I still remember the media, they were like 15 questions for Kathy, <laughs> <laughs> five questions for Tatiana, two questions for Kerry and Nat. Because <laughs> <You know, laughs> like, I, 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 I don't know why so I that we didn't, that it was yeah, a day we were, after. We just, yeah. That's we were just so grateful to be there and, you know, it was incredible yeah. sitting next to two incredible other athletes as well. So I was going to say with the atmosphere, what it was like, I mean, obviously, you know, generally how the Olympics work, successful, you know, swimming campaign most of the time and then it kind of gets into that second week. But Sydney, it just, we were winning gold left, right and centre. So I can imagine just everything around that, that whole, uh, the, the reception you were getting, you know, not just, Bugger the media, two questions. Well, I would have asked you more than that, Kerry, don't worry. Uh, but, I mean, you know, you're talking about all the, the, the attention you're getting. You get a stamp. I mean, that's always a positive <laughs> that you get a st- I mean, who can say that they got a stamp for something they did? I bet you back when you left that job to go play professionally, uh, they would have never imagined that you'd be on a stamp one day, Kerry. Well, one of the job, my first ever jobs, and I worked for um, this company for uh, many years, was with Australia Post. Wow. So I used to sell stamps. across the counter in a post office and then one day yeah if if someone told me then that I'd be on the back on a on a stamp that they'd be licking the back of my stamp I'd be like yeah nah that's not gonna happen yeah (laughs) something to tell all Australia Post employees listening today can tell that you know hey one day you might be licking the back of my head potentially did you get to do Roy and HD G did you get invited on the dream 
Yeah, we did all of the shows. That was a, a funny one. But, of course, we were just so media, I don't know, we were media virgins. We were just going, like, wide-eyed to every single opportunity and, yeah, it just come, it comes and goes in a, a blink of an eye. So we did Roy and HG. We did all the shows. Yeah, we did everything. <laughs> one thing I wanted to ask you, talking about the mental conditioning, I, I believe sort of in terms of the Olympic experience, you, you had spoken to people like Dawn Fraser, Herb Elliott, Pat Rafter, you know, people like that to try and help you in, in that mindset. How, how much does it help speaking to someone like, a you know, Dawn Fraser and Herb Elliott, Olympic legends, to really kind of get into that mindset of, you know, helping you more so competing at the Olympics? I think that's probably one of the most incredible things of being part of the Olympic family, that you can, that you have so many amazing humans around you like not just great athletes but great people because I think sport really um, can build your character and especially you know in team sports but um, it doesn't just always happen the day before or at the event or or overnight like we we'd been around these people and we'd had conversations with people um, like Dawn and Herb and and you know the swimmers and the tennis players we'd been around them at events and things. So it was kind of, we, it built your confidence as well. You kind of feel like, oh, you know, we're one of one of you guys now, you know. Um, and one amazing thing that I'm part of now is the Australian Institute of Sport have a, a program called the Gold Medal Ready Program. And we've been running now for a couple of years, or three years maybe now. I can't even remember with COVID, it's kind of been a little bit hard. We've been doing a lot of stuff virtually, but we, the, the main premises of the program is that as a gold medalist in this country from the last kind of 20 odd years, um, there's about 30 of us and there's about kind of 10 or 15 of us that are involved regularly. But what we do is we just spend time with current athletes and we share stories, you know, the good ones, but also the bad ones, times where we've failed and how we've overcome it you know, the stories of how we, we led into the success that we had winning gold. Um, and we also joined up with this program with the, um, the army, so the commandos. And so we have these guys coming in and, and these guys like uh, are incredible. What they've been through and, you know, what they've had to overcome, you know, when they fail, they could die. Mm. When we fail, it's just a game. So when you hear some of the stories and the strategies that they use to, to deal with what they're doing and you can take a little bit of that and mix it in with our, with our gold medal stories, I mean, these athletes now have got this opportunity to kind of like get this experience, this lived experience from two groups of people in, in sport and in, in the army and it's, it's quite a unique program. I think it's incredible. So I think it has a lot to do with your confidence and just recognizing that, oh, okay, that person's felt how I felt and this is how they dealt with it. Maybe that can help me. And that's what those people did for us back then. And I can imagine too the unique aspect that you also can find yourself in is that Australia will be hosting two Olympics basically in our lifetime, something which is kind of unheard of. And you can now not only, I guess, encourage and help these athletes moving forward, but you can also encourage and help them at a home Olympics, which again is a whole other kettle of fish. I mean, you can take, do you look forward to taking that experience from Sydney and then helping people over the next 11 years added to what you were just saying to go towards the goal of a home Olympics? Yeah, absolutely. So through the gold, hopefully I'll be still, you know, involved with the gold medal ready program. Hopefully the program um, will still be running. But if not, I mean, as a speaker, I'm always speaking to corporate groups, but every now and again, I speak to sporting groups as well. And so, yeah, I'll, I'm 
100% on board anytime anyone wants to, you know, help heal out or have our stories help them with their journeys. Um, absolutely, I'd, I'd love to. And there's nothing official that I'm involved in, in, in that is it's not a paid role. It's all kind of voluntary, except when I get paid for speaking here and there. But um, I absolutely love it. Was John Howard at the uh, the beach volleyball that day? I know it was a bit of a good luck charm during Sydney that every event he turned up to, we seemed to win a gold medal. Did, was, was he there on the day, do you know? Don't know if little Johnny was there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm trying, to, I'm trying to connect all the gold medals. I think that was a bit of a thing they started pointing out. That, well, John so. Howard showing up, there's going to be a gold medal. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. I don't remember seeing any photos of him. No, no little Johnny pointing out there. Uh, obviously, we, we just mentioned before about uh, Tokyo and having the girls, of course, pick up a, a silver there. First first medal that we had won in beach volleyball since you and Nat won back in, in Sydney. I mean, first part of that question, was it surprising that it took so long? Because as we said at the beginning of the episode, I, I think beach volleyball, you think Australia, you know, we should be going to every Olympic swing a medal. Was it a bit of a surprise? It took 21 years? Um. Yeah, it, I guess in a sense, but what, what's kind of happened? Well, first of all, I think, and I talked about this with Natalie the other day, and I think we were just a really unique team. I think at the time we did stuff that was different. We, you know, we invented stuff, just made it up, and we were very creative with the way we played our game because we had to find ways to beat these people who were real purists and who, you know, could play our game in a sense in a way better than us. Um and then after that, I think what happened is the rest of the world got so much better and, and so the depth in the sport was greater and it took our, you know, we didn't have athletes that came in after us that were that were already involved and so they then had to start learning and by the time they got to the, that level, there were so many more athletes that were as good as they were. Um, so I think, it, yeah, I look, I don't know what the, the reason is, um, the men in particular haven't hadn't been in the Olympics since 2008 and they qualified at the last minute, which was great to see the men in there. So hopefully that inspires more guys to get out there. But at the end of the day, we just don't have enough athletes. You know, we just don't have enough, af- enough athletes to choose from. And unless we get, you know, I think the two girls, Maria Fay, Artacho del Solar and Taliqua Clancy, again, they're a unique team. Like Talik was one of the most thrilling players to watch when she's on the top of her game she almost glides through the sand she she just hits at a full reach she's almost unstoppable when she's at the net and Maria Faye just her passion and her determination and you know again a lot of her her success is through her mindset that she's created just to never give up um, because she is one of the shorter players on the tour so I think they're a unique team, a bit of a freak team that we've we've lucked upon. But you know, they're they're going to end at some point. One of them will drop out, or both will drop out. And so, who's next? And we need to just be filling the coffers now with players that are prepared to take that journey. And it's it's not an easy journey as an athlete to dedicate your you know ten years of your life to try and get to the Olympics. But there is an opportunity in twenty thirty two to play at home. Yeah. So you know, Spur it's it on good a little as bit hard more. as any. Exactly, exactly. We, we were we were absolutely loving watching them both during Tokyo and we're sort of a co-Canadian-Australian uh, podcast. So uh, our, our dear co-host Colin, not too happy in the quarters once his world champions got eliminated, but uh, we, we were happy here and we, we enjoyed hearing your commentary too, Kerry. I mean, that must have been a fun experience to be able to kind of get behind the mic and call that, call them on to a, an Olympic medal. <laughs> yeah, look, I've done that a lot now over the last few Olympics. I started in my first Olympics 
as a retired athlete, I went to uh, Beijing and, and did it for seven over there and just loved being able to talk about the sport I love and found that it was quite easy for me. Um, I'm not an expert by any means, but I try and just bring the aspect of what the players might be thinking and feeling and what's kind of happening and try and keep it quite general so people who don't understand the sport can understand what they're seeing. Um, so, yeah, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to go to Paris and, and L.A. And, and then maybe commentate if I'm still around in 2032. You'll be here. You'll be you Come out of retirement, Kerry. You've got plenty of time yeah. to get back in 11 years. You know, why not? Go on, Hopefully Andrew Hoy. Down. Now that Andrew Hoy wins medals at 62, I'm just saying anybody can come back and just do things, right? You know, look up to yeah, Andrew. Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully my son will be there, you know. You never know. Yeah. He loves playing playing volleyball. You never know. You never, you never, never know. Um, now, I want to close things up with a, just a series of fun questions that we sort of uh, close up our, our interviews with. But update what you're doing now. You mentioned sort of some motivational speaking. You're working with the program you said there. But is there anything else out there? I believe you've written a book uh, as well. So, I mean, what are you up to? Plug whatever you like right now so our listeners <laughs> know what, what you're up to. I wrote a book 10 years ago, so your information still counts. is... Is correct, a bit old, but uh, <laughs> it's called The Business of Being an Athlete. It's still available online and it just shares all our stories and strategies and everything. So that's um, that's something I'm really proud of. Um, I have been speaking for a long time. Obviously, at the moment, that's kind of a little bit sad because there's no events around to speak at, but I've been doing a lot of stuff virtually. And lately, I really feel like, I, again, I still have so much to give and, and help people. So... I've decided to start coaching one-on-one and and I thought, what am I going to coach people on? And high performance is obviously what I want to coach people on, but it's more about the art of high performance and the human art of high performance. So really being able to um, work out whatever industry you're in, it doesn't mean sport, it means anything. How can I, I do my best in this industry um, and how can you know I, I improve myself as a human? And that's what we learned through our journey and that's what I want to help other people with now. So coaching and then... And I still love coaching volleyball. So, you know, I always think, oh, maybe I should be a coach. Maybe I should coach a team to the Olympics. But then that involves moving cities and, you know, it's, there's, yeah, that's not just an easy thing to do either. So I end up just coaching a bunch of girls down at Manly Beach and they absolutely love having me down there. And I just get the enjoyment of of that as well. So uh, look, I'm, I'm always doing all sorts of other stuff too. I, like I work with charities here and there and I'm ambassador for certain products or programs or services. So I'm very fortunate that I can still kind of derive an income 21 years later uh, <laughs> from my success in sport. Fantastic. Always good to hear that. And actually, before we get to the questions, there's the questions I always have to ask our medalists on this show. How, how rude of me, Kerry, is uh, what do you do with the medals? I always love finding out what you do with them. What do I do with them, or where is it? Well, both. I mean, where 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 are they, and like uh, well, do they right often now, come out? I keep it in a safe to keep it keep it safe, obviously. Um, but I do use it, and I do take it to my um, presentations, and and you know share share them both around with people, so they're pretty dinged up and a bit worn out, but doesn't bother me. They're well used, and and they inspire. So that's what I do with them, um, and yeah, I keep it close at hand, but in a safe. 
<laughs> how, how when when you're handing them around because I I love the designs of medals and the Atlanta medal has always been one of my favorite designs. I love sort of like the dark green with the gold on the on the ribbon and just it's it's a beautiful looking medal. But I mean, do people care about the like I I would care about the bronze. Like if you were handing them around, I'm like, oh cool, Sydney gold, great. I want to look at the Atlanta bronze because to me it's a no, beautiful they don't care medal. about most people don't care about the bronze. They just want to see the gold. <laughs> Seriously, come on, people, care. get excited about the Atlanta medal. It's one of the most beautiful medal designs I think they've ever been. Yeah. It's a good but I always, I always preface it by saying that like, this is where the dream started. It's got to start somewhere. So, you know, it did really start from that point that when we you know, started our whole journey and, and the whole planning and process from that medal. So pretty important. There you go. I like that. Now, as I said, Kerry, we close out with a set of uh, fun questions. Now, these are based on Team Canada used to do a questionnaire before the Olympics and they'd get to know the athletes a little bit better. And I always pull up a different athlete who's filled it out so we can get some different questions. I'm basing this off their 2016 interview with Canadian volleyball player Gavin Schmidt. Uh, (laughs) Not sure if... uh, He's one of your favourites. I don't know. Schmitty, we can call him. I think that's what we did call him during Rio. But uh, anyway, we'll start off with, and you're allowed to answer your own as well. What is your favourite ever Olympic moment? Obviously standing on the podium and bashing out the national anthem with the medal around my neck and my sister standing next to me, my volleyball <laughs> sister. Nice, nice. Do you um do you still have the sand from Bondi? I remember it was famously you guys got a jar of sand from Bondi afterwards. Is that something you still kept? Yeah, still in my um, bathing suit. Still have to pick it out of my... No, I had the sand in a little container and unfortunately somehow it broke and the sand came out. But um, I think I might have another one somewhere, but yeah. Wow. I think that definitely has. (laughs) Do you just go back to Bondi now and is it just kind of like free beers for life at the local pub or something like that that you can say, hey, I won gold here 21 years ago, give me free beer? Oh, look, I wish it was. Free beers for life. No, they don't know us really. Occasionally we still get recognised. If I if I say my name somewhere, they go, oh, you're that volleyball girl. But I don't think anymore. I think now it'll be like Taliqua Clancy, Maria Feyatacha or Del Salar. <laughs> they're the names that you'll be remembering. Well, I'm sorry, but they're not on SAS Australia, Kerry. So, you know, <laughs> come on. Like you've got that working for you right now. Oh, there yeah. it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you could choose any Olympic host city, where would it be? Well, it's got to be, well, Sydney, pretty amazing. Like you can't go past Sydney, but I'm looking forward to Paris. Mm-hmm. That's going to be special and our event's going to be under the Eiffel Tower. So the photos there will be incredible. I think every city is amazing, um, but, of course, Brisbane in 2032, uh, that should be like unforgettable. Now, now that they're alternating between the cities, of course, uh, kind of going, I guess, from largest to smallest, uh, Perth clearly will be next. But Adelaide, your home city, fifth in line for an Australian Olympics, do you think? Yeah, you know, 20, <laughs> 2070 or something along those lines? What do you reckon? Oh, my God. Yeah, no, I don't think Adelaide's ready for it. <laughs> hey, we try to get a Hobart Olympic bid. Anything's possible. Um, in your spare time, what do you most like to do? My spare time. Well, I've got a lot of it now. I love sleeping. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> I love looking at um, scrolling Instagram and, and looking at all the motivational stuff people put up, which is pretty cool. Keeps me keeps me happy. I, I delete from my feed anything or anybody that's negative. Um, and I love walking the beach and listening to music. That's probably my, my most favourite thing is walking along Manly Beach, Manly to Shelley and listening to music. What are you listening to? What What's on the speakers? 
At the moment, I have like a, a Jamiroquai mix, which nice. is like Spotify radio. So it's a bit of funk, you know, bit sort of upbeat, bit you can sing along to. I try not great. to people think I'm weird, but yeah. No, nah, nothing weird. That Jamiroquai, great list there. I like <laughs> that. Um, I mean, we always put this out there, a bit of homework if you want to take it away, Kerry. They ask the athletes to draw a picture of themselves. So, I mean, if you, if you want to, you're welcome to send it in to us afterwards. Um, the weirdest instruction a coach ever gave you was? Oh, my God. Oh, okay. I've got one. When I was playing indoor volleyball, it was a really, really tough match for Australia. I won't say who our Australian coach was at the time, but I remember him coming out, like calling a timeout. We were all pretty stressed and anxious and he comes into the group and he just bellows at the top of his voice with all the veins in his neck hanging out. He's like, relax. <laughs> that was probably the most ridiculous thing that he could have ever done because, yeah, sure didn't make us relax. Wow. Okay. I'm picturing veins in the net. That's, that's a good image. Um, what is your favourite workout? Walking along the beach. Perfect answer. I like it. Uh, if you could have lunch with any one person, who would it be? Mm. I can't think of any one person. Right now, I'd have lunch with anybody to get out of lockdown. <laughs> See, this questionnaire wasn't um, done with a pandemic in mind, was it? This was just uh, ah, normal life. You can have lunch with anyone. But uh, no, that's that's good answer. What is your favourite sandwich? Uh, I like a toasted, just a plain ham and cheese sandwich, a good sanger made in the toasty, toast. I call it a toasty loasty maker. <laughs> hey that, that could take on there you go um if you could have any superpower what would it be flying flying uh, that would yes. be really cool i think i'd love Perfect. to fly yes uh what is the best lolly or the best candy in the world mm. bananas oh. you know those bananas oh yeah the little candy. soft ones little yeah. soft ones yeah slightly coated with a bit of icing Jeez, like, yeah, the I yellow ones. I have them in a long time. I remember those. They're great. Yeah, I love um, them. As a kid, who was your favourite sports team? Mm, whatever team I was playing on. Ah. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Uh, being from Adelaide, do you, do you follow AFL? Are you a Port or a Crows? Oh, look, I didn't really, but I was pretty happy when the Crows won their first premiership 100 years ago. I don't know when yeah. that was, 20 years ago. I remember. 97 and 98 it was, yep. Yeah, yeah. My brother put his um, trailer on the back of his car and we all piled in the back of his trailer and drove around the streets with everyone else in Adelaide. <laughs> and the police were just like, yeah, whatever. We're all Do just it. so excited. It was fun. I'm a Carlton supporter. It's been longer for us, so I, I don't, I'm too young to even remember that, basically. Uh, what is your favourite sports movie? Oh. I don't know. Oh, maybe Chariots of Fire. Ah, yep. Classic. Good one. Is yeah. there any, any volleyball movies out there? Oh, yeah, the dumb Tom Cruise one. What was it? The Where he plays oh. volleyball. Oh, yeah. Top Gun. Top Gun. That's right. I wouldn't yeah, call yeah. it a sports movie, though, but. <laughs> I mean, shirtless Tom Cruise and Val, Gil Val Kilmer, beach volleyball. I mean,. It suits some people watching it, I guess. Um, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Sydney, Manly Sydney. Beach. Manly Beach, perfect. Um, when you were little, I like this question. We asked this one in a previous interview the first time. This is the second time I'm asking this one. When you were little, what was something you always thought? 
Um, I'm too tall. <laughs> okay, that that works. I, I I I would say I sympathise, but I don't know what it's like. Uh, so, <laughs> no uh, fun when you're when you're taller than everyone else. Yeah, I think I. Yeah, and I didn't like losing, so I, I'd, I'd always be thinking, how can I win? How can I win? Not too tall. I like it. Uh, the final one. Do you have a favourite joke to tell? Oh gosh, I'm hopeless at remembering jokes, and when I try and tell jokes, I always stuff up the punchline. So pretty much no. No. Okay. All right. I like his Schmidty answered. Any good dad joke? So yeah, that's, that's a good one. Yeah, I don't mind a dad answer. joke. I like the dad I like the dumb dad dad jokes better than the clever smart ones. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you there. Kerry, before we let you go, uh, anything you want to plug, social media, website, people can uh, check out what you're up to and stay up to date? Oh, look, you know, I'm not a, a big plugger of stuff, but obviously I'm all over socials, but it's just my name. So Kerry Podast on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. I don't really use TikTok or anything or anything kind of, what is the other one? The kids use Snapchat, all that yeah. sort of stuff, but just just the main ones. Yeah, we'll get you on TikTok and Snapchat eventually. Uh, ahead of yeah. Brisbane, of your triumphant uh, return in uh, 2032. Kerry, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure having a chat with you today to learn more about your career and everything else in between. We really thank you for your time and uh, we eagerly uh, will watch our screens on how you do on SAS Australia because I know I'm intrigued. I'm very intrigued to see how it all plays out. Yeah, excited. Me too. <laughs> And a massive, massive thanks there to Kerry. A lot of fun. And I stand by the fact that the Atlanta medal is one of the most beautiful medal designs I have ever actually seen. Maybe we'll have to do a ranking the Olympic medal designs at some point. Might get a little bit tricky pre-Atlanta because I think the medals were quite basic pre-Atlanta before they started introducing sort of the designs around the ribbons sort of saying what Olympia they were from. I believe Lillehammer was the first to actually do that. So uh, perhaps we need to maybe do a rankings of uh, Lillehammer medals onwards and ranking the designs because I think that would be fun. I think that would be a fun episode. So Jared, Colin, if you're listening, there's another one to put out there as a potential episode coming your way. Next week, though, another great interview coming your way. Another new sport to tick off the list. We are speaking to our first ever canoeists, and I say that with plural with an S at the end because we have two of them for you in husband and wife pairing Elise and Jordan Wood also just returned from Tokyo so like last week when we of course spoke with Alana Goldie we were having some returning Tokyo Olympians and Elise and Jordan uh, give a great insight into into the sport they let us know how most Australians get into the sport of canoeing called the differences between canoeing and kayaking kind of you know sort of the confusion around that whether or not it is the ugly red-headed stepchild of rowing we bring that up in the interview as well and going over their experiences competing in Tokyo they of course also competed in Rio so kind of comparing the two experiences of being in both Rio and Tokyo in what is a very unique and unusual Olympics and during that interview they were actually in quarantine so kind of sharing their quarantine experiences and who their neighbors were which was quite 
interesting to learn what other uh, Australian Olympians were around them at the time of that interview. So Elise and Jordan Ward, it's another great chat that you will enjoy next week. In the meantime, if you've missed out on any of our past episodes, I want to stay up to date with all of these. Remember to subscribe to the channel on all good podcast platforms. You can, of course, go and listen to all our past interviews, past episodes, keep up to date with everything along those ways. And while you're there, leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. Let us know if you like this interview, love this interview, or super love this interview. Let's be honest, there's a three reactions that you would have had to this interview today. And of course, social media as well, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Stay up to date with all of those channels to get up to date with everything that we are doing here on Off the Podium. Big thanks again to Kerry. Tune in next week for Elise and Jordan. Jordan, uh, we can call him Jordan. That can be his new nickname. Until next week, my name is Ben. I'll speak to you next time on Off the Podium. Good night. Can you